Thank you for leading us, Richard. I'm going to invite Peter up now. And Peter, if it's okay, I'll just pray with you. And then we can hear what God's got to say to us. Father, thank you so much that you want to talk to us. Thank you so much that you've put some thoughts and some words and ideas and words into Peter's mouth and into his heart. And we pray that we will have open ears and open hearts to hear what you say to us through our friend Peter now. Pray that, as Richard just prayed in a different context, you'll scare away the crows that are maybe getting in the way of what we're thinking. Give us clear hearts and clear ears and clear minds to hear what it is you want to say to each of us this morning. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. And uh, on that occasion, I'd, I told you that um, while I was sitting over here, the, the thought of doing Desert Island Discs had come to mind, uh, not in terms of music, but in terms of scripture passages uh, and the lessons uh, that I have been taught as a result of them. I was rather uncomfortable with the personal content um, because it would, uh, you know, I'd be speaking about myself, but my aim is to focus upon God's word, uh, some, some of the things which are contained in it, which, which have been lessons for me, and I trust may be lessons for you too. I'm 18 years old, and I'm standing outside the bank in Bangor, the National Provincial Bank, I've just registered at university and I've just deposited my first check, my grant. When I reflect upon the fact that I was given money to live as a student and my fees were paid for, I'm so grateful that I lived at the time I did because I would not have been able to go were it not for that simple fact. So I've registered at Bangor University. And would you believe I still have my bank statement from that time? Uh, I had a bit of a clear out the other day and um, years and years of these things which you're supposed to keep, I've I've kept, Um, but I couldn't throw this one away. And it shows that I deposited 99 pounds, six shillings and eight pence. I'd already opened the account and deposited 29 pounds, 15 shillings, which I assume were my summer earnings. Um, And I'd withdrawn 20 pounds straight away for the early expenditure that any student has. I had to pay for my digs, I had to pay for any books. As I stood there, I reflected upon the fact this was the first time I had money under my control. This was the money I had been given, and I was challenged with what I should do with it. And the scripture that uh, I particularly want to draw your attention to comes from uh, Proverbs chapter 3. And verse 9, honor the Lord with your wealth 
with the first fruits of all your crops. That bank statement showed two more payments of 99 pounds, six shillings and eightpence, which of course I started at uni in faith that they would come later. I had to step out in a sense in trust that God would continue to provide. I went to a church where there was teaching about tithing. We had an annual church giving gift day. And there was always, I think, the New Year ministry, a time of change, time of reflection. Uh, and so giving would come in as, as there is a theme, an opportunity to rethink how one gives to the Lord's work. And my mother was a great saver. My mother had tins in a cupboard. One said rent, one said gas, one said electric. And when she recovered from my father, his wages, minus the cost of one ounce of tobacco and a few sweets at the tobacconist on the way from the station to our home, she put the relevant sum into each of those tins. That always was first. And we grew up on the principle, you never bought anything unless you could pay for it. A good principle. And it stood me in good stead. Because while that had happened, my, my parents made it quite clear that there would be no financial support for me while I was uh, studying. They simply could not afford to. And so I was reliant upon my grant. And God says, honor the Lord first with your wealth, with the first fruits, giving the first fruits. Imagine that, the very first crop that is grown, the very first that's harvested. The whole harvest is not in yet. It's just the first fruits. And what do you do? You give them away. You give them to the Lord because you believe that the Lord who's given you those first fruits will provide the harvest, will provide for you later. We always give to the to the Lord first. And as that uh, verse continues, it, we have this promise. Then your barns will be filled to overflowing and your vats will brim over with new wine. God always promises blessing to those who give. And God is faithful to his promises. I know we've had ministry on this not too long ago, and I, I want to endorse that message, that this is a way uh, that we should be living as Christian people, giving primarily to the Lord. Because really, what this is indicating is everything that comes to us is the Lord's. It's not that we give God anything. He gives us it all, and just requires from us to give part back to him and to his work and to 
the service of the church. However we choose to distribute that, I want to encourage you again to always give first to the Lord. I just mentioned briefly a few years ago, um, I had some kind of windfall. I can't remember quite where it came from. And um, I thankfully received it. And I woke up to the fact a few months later that somehow Gordon Brown, who was Chancellor of the Exchequer, had got in first because he'd taxed it and I had what was left over. And I thought, hang on, hang on. I shouldn't now tithe what's left over. I should go back to the original sum before Gordon Brown got his fingers on it. Said, Lord, that's your portion. So I had to readjust my giving. I know it's rather comical, but I really do believe this is the important lesson for life. And I can honestly say I have never been in need. I'm 15 years old. And I'm at the start line of the 220 yards final of the Kent Schools Athletics Championship at Gillingham. I eye my competitors. There's the boy who beat me in the first round. He was in a different semi-final and he didn't win. So I could see the guy who did. And also alongside me was the boy who beat me in the semi-final. So I'm there waiting for the start and I already know that I can't win. If they run as they did before and as I ran as I did before. The best I can be is about fourth. Well, as a former athlete, you wouldn't believe it, would you? As a former athlete, I was familiar with the teaching of the Apostle Paul. And the verse that comes to mind is, is in his first letter to the Corinthians. He wrote to the Corinthians and mentioned uh, athletics simply because in Greece, the uh, Olympics were every four years, and there were games at Corinth the year before the Olympics and the year after. And then there was another set of games two years after the Olympics. Basically, there was always an athletic competition, whatever year you were in. And so the Corinthians would have been familiar with hosting the games every other year. Not only hosting the games, but of course, no doubt, seeing people jogging around Corinth, keeping fit. So they would be familiar with the picture, and the Apostle Paul uses it. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 24, he simply writes, Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one gets the prize? Run in such a way as to get the prize. So he uses other sporting analogies. He talks about boxing. He talks about race running. 
about training and the discipline that it gives, the self-control and the coordination. But his message is run to win. And so that's my strategy. I'm likely to be fourth at best, but I'll run to win. Well, here's a photo of the end of the race. You won't recognize the person at the front, no doubt, but a friend of mine noticed this in the window of uh, a, a newspaper printing uh, place in Kent. And um, I'm interested in that photo. Yes, it is me crossing the line first with 61 emblazoned on me. But 57, well, that's the lad who beat me in the first round. And the other boy in the picture in the middle is the one who beat me in the semi-final. I only won one race that day, but it was the final. And there's, <laughs> there's a message in there somewhere, isn't there? Always run to win. I had no strategy. Athletes this day, they'll ease up as they cross the line because it's not the final. They just need to get into the final. So they don't show up too much. Then they go all for it in the final. No strategy like that for me. I just ran every race and aimed to win. Interestingly, I set a new record for Kent uh, schools that year, and it was never beaten. Because a couple of years later, they went metric. Um, so <laughs> 220 yards was no longer a possibility. So all the old records were scrubbed. But there's a lesson there, and it's a lesson in my own life, but it's a lesson for all of us who run the spiritual race, that we run to win. The message is always, do your best, aim high. The kind of things that we tell children in school these days, that's true for all Christian believers. Whatever is before you, aim high. In another letter, Paul writes, Whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord, not for human masters, speaking there to slaves, to those who were employed, but basically saying, whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord and not for human masters. Always run to win, do your best. I'm 44, I'm standing in the pulpit announcing the text for my morning sermon. I've been in what they call full-time ministry for four years and the last year has been particularly challenging. There are two of us uh, sharing the ministry and falls to me to speak from Philippians chapter 1 and verse 27. 
And so my text was, whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. It was a very pertinent word for the church I was ministering to at that time. Paul's words to the Philippians are very broad in their application. Whatever happens, he says, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Later in this same letter, he says, do everything without grumbling or arguing. And then again, he says, if I can find it, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. And then again, he says, rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again, rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. Do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. And also in another letter he says, in everything give thanks, for this is the will of God concerning you. There's no shades of gray somehow with Paul. He said, well, you know, in this situation, I just sort of ease back a bit or I do that. No, it's, it's everything. It's all. It's always. There's, there's just no escape in this Christian life from giving of your best. And whatever happens, I announced that morning, whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Earlier in this chapter, uh, Paul has talked about how the fact that even though he is in prison, it hasn't limited his ministry. Because in fact, all it has given is new opportunities for him. He's now in contact with other prisoners, with prison guards, with people he wouldn't normally be in contact with. But his circumstances have put him right there. So he says, I'm still fruitful in my ministry. He's looking to release and he's looking to return so that he can visit the church at Philippi. So he's, he's aiming to get there. That is his purpose. But he says, well, even if I don't turn up, if I don't make it, it's important to me that you continue to make spiritual progress. Your progress as a Christian doesn't rely upon me. It's your own effort and input into serving the Lord, because this goes on. So whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Then, whether I come and see you 
or only hear about you in my absence, I will know that you stand firm in the one spirit, striving together as one for the faith of the gospel. It proved to be my last sermon to the church. And I would not preach again for nearly 10 years. In fact, I would have no public ministry of any kind. No public Bible reading, no public prayer. I just felt it would not be right to say anything. And I think it's right now not to say anything about those years and the time that brought them about. It was a a painful episode. I don't want you to think that my life has always been smooth. I have questions, but I've never had any answers. And I realize how important it was that that ministry that morning was actually for me. Whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. And that was uppermost in my mind <clears throat> at that difficult time. Change came about. And change brought new chances, new opportunities. Yes, <clears throat> that period eventually <clears throat> passed and I felt able to begin ministry again. I wouldn't be here <clears throat> if that ha hadn't happened because my life has changed. I attended a new church. I met new people. Uh, my life took on a different route. I've got questions. I'm not going to trouble the Lord with the answers. You know, some people say, oh, those issues, I want to know, what, you know, what, what, I want God to explain to me and so on. I think, no, Lord, I'm quite happy. I'm happy to trust that you are working in the change to bring about new chances, new opportunities to serve. So that's my lesson from that period of life, to trust. Paul writes to the Romans, in all things, there we are again, in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. And we sang this morning, and I had to stop singing, and I had to write down this line, we rest within the wisdom of your plan. I can do no more. I know that the Lord is good and he has guided me. I'm 25 years old. <laughs> For several years, I've been a leader at a two-week summer boys camp up at West Runton. The first time I ever came to, to Norfolk because of those. And the leaders are having a briefing. The boys arrive tomorrow. There's opportunity to share and to pray. And I'm feeling absolutely wretched. I have no enthusiasm whatsoever. 
And while others are reading scriptures and the like, I open my Bible. I don't often do this at random, but my eyes fell upon Isaiah chapter 54, verses 2 to 3, which say, Enlarge the place of your tent. Stretch your tent curtains wide. Do not hold back. Lengthen your cords. Strengthen your stakes. For you will spread out to the right and to the left. I was familiar enough with camping to know that there were times when you'd need to take the sides down to let more people in. And that was the picture that I had. And I thought, there it is again. But I couldn't share it. I actually felt miserable as I read those words. Because, you see, something strange, something unique in my Christian life had happened just a short while before. The friend who had introduced me to these camps at West Runton Um, I was staying with him, and he suggested we have a time of prayer for camp. And bless him, he would insist on praying right at the beginning, Lord, if you have a word of prophecy or a word of knowledge, give it to us, you know. There are only two of us. And I'm thinking, well, (laughs) it's not going to be anything to do with me. Because, you know, this is all unknown territory to me. But as we prayed, I couldn't get an image out of my head and some words. I had a picture of an eye. And the words in the authorized version (laughs) were, Mine eye is upon you, saith the Lord. That was a worrying thing because it saith the Lord in the first person. Well, I keep this to myself, but I can't get it out of my mind. I continue to pray for camp and so on in in the normal way. I realize eventually I have got to speak this out. I have to say it, but I don't know where it's going. So I stepped out, mine eye, is upon you, saith the Lord. And as I did so, the next picture that came to me was the layout of the camp, because they always set it out exactly the same year after year after year, as they had done for the previous 100 years. And, which is true, and I could see the tents. I could see, so I spoke into that situation what I could see. And then the next thing I saw was a harvest field. And I saw a hand with a sickle cutting the corn. So what was I saying? I was saying, it's going to be a harvest. And I felt dreadful. And here it was, the night before camp, the same thing. Why didn't I share it? Well, because my friend had got to camp first and he told everybody, he told everybody 
that we had this prophecy, this word from the Lord, and we were going to have a harvest that year. The weight of responsibility on me was such that I felt utterly miserable. Even though the Lord was saying, enlarge the place of your tent, stretch your tent curtains wide, don't hold back, you'll spread out to the right and the left. There were some other people there, officers, leaders. There was such a fervency of prayer, such a fervency of prayer. And then the, the, the plan at camp was to spend the first week of the two weeks leading up. You lay the ground of the gospel message, the good news. Then on the Sunday, we were to go to the local church. You might have seen this. It's Beeston Regis Church that you might, as you walk from West Runton over to Sheringham. It stands rather isolated because uh, there is not much left. Um, the sea has claimed quite a bit of the old village. And that's the place we all went to. Over a hundred boys, leaders, and so on. And an evangelist, Church of England evangelist, led the service and gave a call, an invitation for boys to follow Christ. And over half the camp stayed behind for prayer. And the rest of the camp on the spiritual side was taken up with ministering to these boys and preparing them for later life and introducing them to Bible study, to prayer, to fellowship, and all those kinds of things. But my doubt still continued. My sense of uh, feeling wretched continued. Can you believe it? I still felt no enthusiasm because I felt the weight of responsibility. And I was questioning even then, is this a harvest? There's only half the camp. <laughs> you know, could it have been more? Well, of course it could have been more, but is this a harvest? One year later, I'm on the same field. We're in a car, a group of us, leaders. It's raining. And we're asking the question 12 months later, what has gone wrong? We've done what we've done before. The first week we've presented the gospel. We've called, given the call to faith on the Sunday. And there was so little response. Just a few boys. And the other leaders were saying, what has gone wrong? And I am saying, it was a harvest <laughs> last year. And for the first time, I felt enthusiastic about what had happened before. But I felt repentant because of my attitude. I said at the beginning, it's unique in my experience. I've never known this before. So I don't want you to get, oh, get hold of the stick that this is 
like my life all the time. This is unique in my experience, but I felt the Lord spoke through me at that time, and there was that future element in it, which was the fearful thing, a kind of prediction in it, not just simply a word of, of encouragement or blessing, but a kind of prediction. And that was, gave me the weight of responsibility. And I've had to learn to recognize the Lord's voice. When is the Lord speaking? That's my lesson from this time. And of course, I've had more time to, to learn to recognize when the Lord is speaking so that I know what to speak on when I stand here in this place because there's a weight of responsibility I need to bring to you what the Lord is telling me to bring to you. You'll be pleased to know that this will not be happening again. These are life lessons for me. I've done two sermons on in this way, but uh, you can have too much of, a, of, of my experience. But I want you just to uh, reflect upon the fact that these experiences that I've shared with you are, have a root in scripture for me, so that I can use these in my own testimony. And I want you to do the same if you're a Christian believer. You've had lessons from your life, and I want you to attach a scripture with those. Perhaps it is already, but if not, find one. And there will be opportunities to share those moments in your life and what you learnt from the Lord. There's an encounter meeting this evening. Usually there's an opportunity to share. Why not come? and share something from your past experience. But what if you haven't yet begun? Life has its ups and downs, and life with Christ has its ups and downs. But we've reflected this morning on what Jesus has done for us in laying down his life, that we might have life, paying the price in his body and blood for our sin. Let's give him our life wholeheartedly and trust him and learn as we live how to know him better and to serve him better and to share him with the needy world. Amen. The band are going to come and sing. I've been so pleased with being upbeat this morning um, because we're going to keep being upbeat. I want to serve the purpose of God in my generation. As we sing, make that your heart's wish too.